is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is my co-host Megan Bojarski. Hello. And we are your host to this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. And I'm actually just going to turn it back over to Megan to explain what we're doing today for this and our next post-season three bonus episodes. We have two guests with us here today and we'll let them introduce themselves in a minute. But I have a long spiel written up. We'll see if I actually stick to the script. Today, we're doing a special kind of bonus episode that I have been calling Adaptation Clashes, which I don't think Ryan has literally ever heard me call it, but you know. <laughs> so we have a, a group of guests with us today, all of whom have chosen an adaptation or two or gone way overboard and watched like seven of Cinderella to watch and learn about. Cinderella specifically, we wanted to talk about because it's officially one of the most adapted stories of all time, in part because basically every human culture ever has had a story that we refer to as a Cinderella story. It might not be called Cinderella, we stick with the kind of European name, but it pretty much appears in every culture ever. Colloquially, it basically just means when somebody gets a higher social status. But as one of the NPR articles I read for this said, that means that Captain America is a Cinderella story. And that's just way too broad for our purposes. So specifically, we're looking at something that says the name Cinderella, has wicked step family members, a lost shoe, some of the really kind of iconic elements. So we're specifically doing this to really look into the story, how it's been played with over time, and then specifically how the Disney movie, which we all think of as so iconic, may have kind of influenced the movies that came after it. All of these adaptations are very different from each other, but a lot of them still kind of draw on the same two or three source materials, mostly the Charles Perrault version, the Brothers Grimm version, and our lovely Disney version. So all of that said, we're going to start off with kind of a rundown of however many movies our wonderful guests have watched for this. And we're going to talk about how they stand up to Disney, how they represent different elements of the story. And then at the end, we will theoretically be crowning a best adaptation from the Disney movie and the options that we'll be talking through. We'll see if we can come to a consensus or not. This might just be a battle royale at the end. I would like to introduce our guests. First up, I'm going to introduce Elise. Hello, I'm Elise. I do a Star Trek podcast called uh, Pod Wraith. It's a Deep Space Nine rewatch podcast. And I do a True Blood rewatch 
podcast with Melissa and some other friends. And that is called Fang Bangers with a Z at the end. So I have my two podcasts, but I also very much love Cinderella a lot. Um, I grew up watching the 1950 Disney movie all the time. Um, I actually had never read any of the fairy tale versions of the story until like this week, which is kind of fun. I do remember when I was a kid, we watched a musical theater version of it, but I didn't remember anything about it except for like a couple scenes here and there. And then last year when it got added to Disney Plus, I watched the Whitney Houston and Brandy version from 1997. And I was like, wait a second, I know most of these songs. Like, what? what's going on here? So I had Googled and I realized that the version I watched as a child was a remake of another version. And then the Brandy Whitney Houston version was like a second remake of the same Rodgers and Hammerstein version. Um, the first one being from 1957 with um, with Julie Andrews. In any case, so I was like, I want to watch this version I watched as a child again. So the 1965 TV musical version, which is what I watched. Melissa? Yeah, I'm Melissa. I participate in the aforementioned True Blood podcast. I also have several years of podcast content about movies and TV, comics, all that good stuff. That's over at Wild Pretty Things if you're interested. I am sure that I saw the Disney adaptation or the original, I guess we're calling it for these purposes, the Disney film. I'm sure I saw it as a kid, but I don't specifically remember that as part of my childhood, the way that I remember watching the Brandy and Whitney Houston version of Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'm pretty sure I didn't even know that that was a remake of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical until Elise picked that version for this episode. And I definitely, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about how obsessed with Ever After I was and am. <laughs> so I don't need to hit on that too hard. But I grew up as a Hillary Duff girly. So I have a big history with the Cinderella story as well. So I took the opportunity to rewatch that. <laughs> and I just, I guess I've just always been like passingly familiar with the Grimm's version of the fairy tale because I just feel like I have always known the heel thing because that <laughs> is distressing. And I remember being distressed by it as a child. <laughs> it is really distressing. And for, for my part, uh, I'm I'm most familiar with the Disney version, but I definitely watched the Brandy Whitney Houston Cinderella version like when it aired. I don't it did not become like a staple uh, of mine growing up. It's like hashtag boy things, I think, more than more than anything <laughs> else. Like Cinderella is not a story that, you know, I identified with as much as much as a kid, you know, even though like I would enjoy watching different versions of it. Uh, and so for this, I actually watched both Ella Enchanted and Ever After for the first time to report about these today. So looking forward to talking about all, all of these different versions. One of the things that's going to be most fun with that is that at least two of the movies that we're talking about today both came out in 2004. So we're going to have a, a 2004 off. <laughs> because one of the things that I had looked into... Specifically with a Cinderella story, the uh, Hilary Duff one, is that it came out in the same year as Ella Enchanted, the second Princess Diaries movie, and The Prince and Me. So it was it was a princess heavy Cinderella story year in 2004, which I think will be just fascinating to talk about. 
So yeah, I think that there's going to be a lot we can play with, with, you know, Disney, all of the versions in between, and then kind of culminating in 2004, the revival of Cinderella year, apparently. And I think it's interesting to talk about it now because we had, God, what, what is it? Andrew Lloyd Webber's Bad Cinderella. Is that the one with Lily James? That's the live action Disney, but then no. last year or maybe two years ago, because time isn't real anymore, there was the Camille Cabello one with Prince Henry from Red Wine Royal Blue. So I haven't <laughs> seen that yet, but now I have to. I'm cursed. <laughs> I should say, and I forgot to say it earlier, I did also watch Ever After, which I had never seen before, which is wild. Because like it came out when I was in high school, I should have watched it. There's so many of these that like I think people kind of know about, but we may not have all seen them. One Great. of the things we talked about with our Peter Pan episode is that I don't think I'd ever actually seen Disney's Peter Pan. I had seen the 2003 live action, and somehow I just decided that was the Disney version because they all kind of globbed together. So I think it'll be interesting to talk about where different elements kind of stuck in our minds. Just to briefly recap uh, what we talked about in our Cinderella episodes, because we have too much to talk about. I am a huge fairy tale person. So I wasn't big on Disney, but I've read as many fairy tales as I could get my hands on. And my strongest Cinderella memory at this moment, which I don't think we've mentioned before, is that I directed a play called The Brothers Grimm Spectaculathon. <laughs> which claims to put every single one of the Brothers Grimm stories in like an hour long one act play. And it is wild. Incredible. That sounds insane. I love it. It's so good, actually. And it is, it's basically intentionally low budget, intentionally campy. And the fact that I had no budget made it even better. But their Cinderella segment is kind of the only one where the whole story plays out. But the premise in the play is that there was some really bad catering. And so slowly all of the actors end up getting sick. And so one actor has to play every role in Cinderella simultaneously. And I still think that's one of the best things I've ever seen on stage. Which I directed it, so it's a, it's a bit of a humble brag, but I just... To me, Cinderella will always be associated with chaos as, you know, <laughs> you simultaneously have the prince offering the shoe, the stepmother cutting off the heel, the stepsister screaming, all played by one actor at the exact same moment with like four different things <laughs> on his head. So that's, that's always going to be Cinderella for me. Just utter chaos. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting just how many different versions there are like i i didn't even realize before you know going through the like cinderella wikipedia page that like i was like oh you know european versions and then like that's even ancient history like there's versions of the story that exist thousands of years before the brothers Grimm and pro come come on the scene to sort of like give us our like canonical cinderella so i think there's definitely something that feels very like a baseline about like about the story just in general. And I think that that's, that's part of why I wanted to do this because what we'll be doing on our next bonus episode is kind of the same thing with Peter Pan. 
But I feel like where Peter Pan adaptations are all trying to capture the same story, Cinderella adaptations get weird. And we're going to talk about that today (laughs) because there's definitely like a through line. It's definitely, it tends to be stuck on the European versions. We get, we go to some weird places. We've got some modern stuff. We've got some gender bent. We've got teen dramas. So I think now is the perfect time for everyone to just go around and say what movie you're the expert for. You may have watched multiple, but what are what were you assigned the expert for? What's a brief synopsis? And just tell us a little bit about the movies that we're going to be kind of running through over the course of the next however many hours. Yeah, so I watched El Enchanted for this. Uh, it, it, it is, as we mentioned before, from 2004. It is directed by uh, a guy named Tommy O'Haver. This is his, by far, his most high-profile uh, film directing work. I did not recognize any of the other movies on his IMDb page. And it stars Anne Hathaway, which was basically the main reason that I chose this, besides like sort of being vaguely aware of it culturally. And this is, to me, very much the... Well, I, I should say, it's based on... Uh, a 1997 novel of the same name by Gail Carson Levine. But it is, uh, even the people involved in making this say it is a very loose adaptation. It's like, it's almost like inspired by the novel more than it's an adaptation of the novel. It takes a lot of the same premise and setup, but is really doing kind of its own thing. And so like, uh, my understanding, like our editor Tessa, who is a fan of the book, did not like this movie because it was so so far away from the source material. Not having read the book, uh, I don't have that background knowledge for this. I do want to note it was a co-production between production companies in the U.S., Ireland, and the U.K. The American part of it was uh, through Miramax, uh, which obviously has a complicated history that we don't need to get into for this episode. But this. This very much feels like the like the, the tone of this and the way this got made because this features a lot of like well-known rock and pop songs like you know there's Queen, there's Kelly Clarkson, like there's a bunch of different stuff that's that's very like sort of pop oriented. This feels like the Shrek Cinderella. Like this could take place in the Shrek universe almost and it it would feel it would feel right because there's a lot of magical creatures and there's also a lot about injustice and oppression and a lot of other things that like do actually relate to the core Cinderella story itself in ways that I thought actually were really interesting. But like the tone of it and sort of like the whole vibe of it feels very Shrek to me. It's very silly, which I enjoyed. And one thing I must mention about Ella Enchanted is that like the clothing that they're wearing is very 2004, but it's like 2004, but like make it elves and ogres. And I just was so charmed by that. I thought it was so funny. That is my ideal aesthetic. Like modern <laughs> yes. fairy tale ish has always been my preferred vibe that I have never been able to live up to. But I, I do see the Shrek and I'm surprised that we didn't actually have anybody talking about Shrek 2. Because that's a whole other Cinderella story. (laughs) I feel like I missed all the 2004 movies because of my age. Like, I I had not seen any of those movies that y'all mentioned that came out in 2004. And I just feel like that makes me really sad. 
Yeah, I this was the year I graduated high school slash started college. So the LA Enchanted yeah. was not something I was going out to the theater. Uh, I to was see. in my last year of college. I have refrained multiple times from mentioning how old I was in 2004, but I think it's quite obvious that I was 13 because of how formative <laughs> these movies were. <laughs> and I, I was that. seven. So I got into them after the fact. They, <laughs> like they were there, but I was too young to really get them at that point. I'll just say I was 22. <laughs> were you feeling 22, Elise? I, I really was. <laughs> no red lipstick though but the last thing i'll say about ellen chandler for now is that it does have actually an amazing cast besides uh anne hathaway that i mentioned it has hugh dancy as the prince that she falls in love with uh carrie Hughes as his evil uncle steve coogan eric idol uh mini driver vivica a fox and of course i mean i don't know how you could do this movie without her uh heidi klum plays a giant which is just like <laughs> A, a thing that I'm so glad I discovered exists. <laughs> That's an insane cast. Um, I kind of, I'm going to probably watch this movie eventually. I know I was supposed to, I should have watched it beforehand, but. Well, you didn't have to watch all of the movies. That was. Oh, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> that wasn't the starting expectation, but I feel like a bunch of us just like decided to go all in on it. We love our podcast homework. <laughs> it's just. That's fair. It's my yeah. life. <laughs> so, Elise, you chose one of the Roger Hammerstein adaptations. Yeah. You Do you want to give us the lowdown on that? Sure. I know I said a little bit about the background beforehand, but um, basically, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella is the only musical that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote that was made for television. Like, they did... It went on the stage after... But this one was always intended to be on television first, which I think is really interesting. And it's their only one that was that was the case. It's very strongly based on the Charles Perrault version of Cinderella or the Glass Slipper. The way that their partnership worked, um, Rogers did the music and Hammerstein did the lyrics. Um, so it was, as I said earlier, it was originally aired in 1957, starring um, Julie Andrews as Cinderella. And then after the, it did so well, they um, took it to the stage in London and other places as well. And it just did really, really well. So in, in the early 60s, CBS was like, we should do another version of this, but in color. This, like the 1957 version, was filmed on videotape and color videotape did not exist in 1957. So that's kind of like the, let's update it and put it in color and make it pretty. And so the 1965 version, which was the color remake, is um, what I watched. And then as I said earlier, the 1997 version that we all talked about is the same uh, musical, just a new version. This version was directed by Charles S. Dubin, who directed various episodes of television like MASH, The Rockford Files, and Murder, She Wrote, and I know podcasting is not visual, but I am wearing my Murder, She Wrote t-shirt today. <laughs> that was unintentional. <laughs> it um, This movie stars Leslie Ann Warren as Cinderella. Um, she was in movies like Clue, and um, she was in Mission Impossible, the television show. 
And then Ginger Rogers plays the queen, Walter Pigeon the king, Celeste Holm as the fairy godmother, Joe Van Fleet as the stepmother, Pat Carroll and Barbara Ruick as the stepsisters, and Stuart Damon, who my parents told me today was a general hospital actor, um, as the prince. <laughs> um, I did notice that only Warren Rogers, Pigeon, and Holm had, like, title billing on the poster so everyone else was kind of just like a and that other person <laughs> um this aired on february 22nd and has been rebroadcast a total of eight times from then until 1974 but the debut of this actually was the highest rated thing that cbs had on air that wasn't sports from like the time the nielsen rating started to 2009 which is a pretty long time um i did not find out when the Nielsen ratings started. I meant to, and then I did not. Um, so I, I know I explained this earlier, but basically I just saw the 97 version and was like, all right, I need to find the version I watched as a kid. In general, this is just a very traditional musical theater with choreographed dancing and singing. Um, the costuming, it feels very, um, they're wearing like tights and cone hats and it just, it felt very of its time. It kind of reminded me of something that they would like do in the Star Trek, like hollow suite or something. Like they'd like perform, like Data would perform like a version of Cinderella or something, um, which was really, really fun. I really, really liked the set and the fact that there were real horses in this um that made me really happy <laughs> but the set was like really cool because obviously it was made for television so it was very like it had depth to it rather than just being like a wide stage and stuff like that which was really nice and the, like the dresses were long and flowy which i really liked and they all had like the little wristbands so they didn't trip on their skirts when they were dancing Cinderella's dress is a little ridiculous. It's very pretty, but it has this like fake fur like thing that goes around her shoulders, which I don't think really goes goes with it. But that dress and her crown that she's dressed as like that was ingrained in my brain. So when I was watching this and she finally you know gets her gown, I was like, this is the movie I remember. So overall. I, you know, it was fine, <laughs> um, but I had a really good time watching it. I actually did two of them, so I think I'm going to describe one over um, to Melissa, and then I'll, I'll do my other one then. I'm going to start with the weird one. So I wanted to watch something that I had never watched before, that I had never heard of before. So I specifically looked into 1960s Cinderfella which just sounded like it was either going to be really good or really awful. And it was definitely one of those. <laughs> <laughs> to, to give a little bit of backstory, there isn't terribly much. Um, it was directed by Frank uh, Tashlin. It stars Jerry Lewis and Ed Wynn, which is really kind of the big part of it. And it was uh, put together by Paramount. So this was specifically at a time period where Jerry Lewis was doing everything with Paramount. Apparently, it was so successful, his uh, various works with Paramount, that Barney Balaban, I think, who was the head of production at Paramount, told the press, quote, If Jerry wants to burn down the studio, I'll give him the match. 
So they were going to let him do whatever he wanted, however he wanted. So while this was not written or directed by him, it, it was his movie. And that's, that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind. So this was set in the modern day, modern meaning 1960, in California, and it was gender-bent for every role except the stepmother. So the stepmother remained female, but every other role switched, which in some ways had some interesting commentary, and in other ways just was a thing they chose to do. Just a couple of kind of interesting things about it. Number one, Jerry Lewis decided that this movie needed to be a holiday movie. Apparently he thought that royalty and balls just screamed Christmas. So they wanted to give it a big summer release. He refused. And so Paramount said, fine, do what you want, but you owe us a summer film. So he rushed together his directorial debut in Bellboy, which ended up being one of his most recognizable movies that brought him a massive amount of critical success and led to him being a director more. So I find it funny that this movie was supposed to be the big one, and instead the one that he like rushed out to fit a contract ended up being a big deal. There's a lot we can and will talk about, but my best description for it is it was made in 1960, but to me, it felt very modern in that this is the incels version of Cinderella. And it gets very explicit with it. It, it pushes back on it a, a little bit at the end, but just one little note that I want to throw out there is that essentially the concept is that this, this hasn't happened naturally. They live in a world where Cinderella was real and it happened. And the association of men, and they give like three different groups, decided that Cinderella was dangerous because it made women wish for more and then they would abuse their husbands because they their husbands weren't princes. So this the the main character fella was chosen to break this so that women would lower their expectations and stop being such nagging bitches. And that's the concept. That's where we start. That's like verbatim. <laughs> I turn this movie off that is all i'll say <laughs> i got about 35 minutes in and i was like this is not watchable i'm like impressed that you both watched it it's taken me a few days i will say uh it's accessible on canopy which yeah. gives you 72 hours to watch so a little difficult there i will say when i started writing notes i i can find a benefit of the doubt to give it and we'll talk about that later. But if you take it at face value, it is absolutely the incel version of Cinderella. And that's that's where I'll leave it for now. So one thing about the Chicago Public Library, they do not participate with Canopy. <laughs> I tried to hack it, but that didn't happen. Just I had some I had some credits in some places, so it's not like I paid real dollars to watch this movie. And I would also like everyone to know that I watch movies during the workday, so I wasn't just like watching the movie. Like the second I realized what it was, I was like, okay, data entry. What do we have today? <laughs> <laughs> 
So I watched like basically the polar opposite of this film, which is the 1998 movie um, that was billed and marketed at the time as Ever After, a Cinderella story. It is inspired by the Charles Perrault fairy tale, (laughs) despite naming the Brothers Grimm in universe. (laughs) This version removes all of the supernatural elements of the Cinderella story and treats it as historical fiction. So the Cinderella story happens um it's just not a fairy tale it's in in the universe like there's a framing device and we're basically hearing the story secondhand from someone in cinderella her name's danielle uh in her family uh this film was produced by fox family films and distributed by 20th century fox which i thought was interesting because you know it was playing off of the the Disney animated film, which people were familiar with, and obviously there had been multiple adaptations, you know, before we get to 1998. But I just think it's funny that this was a Fox film. They basically were like, we made Cinderella better, and then Disney bought them. And so now you watch Ever After on Disney Plus anyway. That's great. Yeah, this was directed by Andy Tennant, who also directed It Takes Two, the Mary-Kate and Ashley movie, mm-hmm. which is one of my childhood favorites, and Sweet Home Alabama, which is also a childhood favorite and another favorite of my mother's. This could potentially be my mother's favorite director. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not really true. It's just funny because like, we love after, Ever After and we love Sweet Home Alabama. But I copied this verbatim off of Wikipedia, which is, this is considered to be a modern post-feminist interpretation of the fairy tale, which I feel is very much accurate. And this I copied from an article on Screen Rant that basically they explained that whenever After came to VHS, they decided that it would be edited to pair the original 3D rating down to just PG with the thinking that more parents would buy it for their kids. And I just have to say that this works because my mom and I watched this VHS together like countless times and I watched it like every single day after school for all of seventh grade while I did my little homework just ever after VHS. Drew Barrymore said in a People interview at one point that she does not know who she would be honestly without this movie, and I feel the same. (laughs) (laughs) Did they edit stuff back in, like, for a more modern release? or is I don't think so. Basically, what had to come out were just curses. Oh, okay. So I would love for them to be in there, but (laughs) I'm not dissatisfied with the content. Yeah. (laughs) The unrated cut of (laughs) Ever After. (laughs) I made the Snyder cut of that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's just weird. There's just like a ton of F-bombs. Like it actually, like the unrated version actually like, you know, it's like a Scorsese movie with the... (laughs) (laughs) The horse gets stolen and its head gets cut off and put in someone's bed. They had to do an ADR replacement of Spoiled Selfish Cow. (laughs) I should specify that I know that Scorsese did not direct The Godfather. (laughs) I was going to let that slide. He didn't? (laughs) Yeah, so I think for me... The I literally had to pause this movie when they introduced Leonardo da Vinci because I was like, "What is happening?" <laughs> Me too. I, was, I think I paused at the same time. I was like, "What is what is this?" And so, like, I had not seen this before watching it to to prep for this. 
I was very surprised that there were no supernatural elements in this version of the story, which I think is a really interesting choice. And I think, you know, there's there's so much about this version. I think maybe even El Enchanted kind of plays on this in a, in a different way that I think is interesting. But I think Ever After very much feels like the... If we take the supernatural elements out, we can show that she's like an empowered like an empowered character that like she is making her own choices and like you know really like advancing her own position she's not waiting on you know some deus machina coming out and like boom i'm solving your problems with magic and like then everything's fine like she this version of cinderella like earns her happy ending very specifically I, i think and like really goes through like a whole character arc and like changes a lot and learns a lot and like there's you know this is like the most hero's journey cinderella that version that like i've ever i've ever seen and that's that's not a complaint i I think it's a really interesting choice for sure i would agree with that and i i think it i mean spoiler alert this was my favorite and i hadn't seen it either before and i think i like it more because it doesn't have the magic aspect of it I can be hit or miss with like fantasy um, magic and stuff like that. But I think without the magic, it makes the characters actually have to change and like deal with their issues in a way that they might not have to if there was a fairy godmother. I think that's a good lead into talking about the last movie that we're going to be covering, which was the 2004 A Cinderella Story, because that also takes out the magic. This is just set in 2000s California in high school. And there are definitely some weird dynamics going on, but there's nothing magical, strictly speaking. So A Cinderella Story is, in my opinion, the most Disney possible, not Disney produced movie in so many weird ways. So A Cinderella Story was directed by Mark Rosman. I looked up his IMDb page and it's wild because he actually directed an episode of the magic wor- Magical World of Disney, two episodes of The Wonderful World of Disney, two episodes of Even Stevens, 11 episodes of Lizzie McGuire, which is why, in part, why there is Hilary Duff. So we have a very Disney-focused director. We have a very disney and or teen rom-com cast. This is starring Hilary Duff and Chad Michael Murray. But it was actually put out by Warner Brothers. So they just took everything Disney and then were like, but but technically, the money does not go there. And that's that's what matters. And one thing that I also wanted to point out about this one is that similar to Ella Enchanted, it's it's definitely like a who's who's of the 2000s in a lot of ways. And if it's not for the 2000s, it's for people who were going to be big in the 2010s. I was watching it and all of a sudden Howard from The Big Bang Theory just runs in as, you know, funnily enough, a dork who is obsessed with science and aliens. So, I mean, he's massively typecast. The stepmother is Jennifer Coolidge, she she does what Jennifer Coolidge does, but in my opinion, the best time that Jennifer Coolidge ever did Jennifer Coolidge, because it is perfect for this role. 
One thing that I also found funny with the cast was the mean girl. So the the stepsisters are kind of like wannabes. Like they they are not as cool as they think they are. So they had to invent the real popular characters. And so the main popular girl, Shelby, is played by Julie Gonzalo, who I know from Supergirl, but I also found hilarious because I just watched her as the lead in a movie. SNL made... Okay, I'm I'm gonna tangent briefly. Did anybody see the SNL sketch, sketch for a Hallmark Halloween movie? No. Mm-mm. So it came out, I think, the week of Halloween, and basically it was like, girl goes back to her hometown and runs into the creepy stalker from high school, but he teaches her about the true meaning of Halloween by stabbing people and talking about how much he wants to kill her. Which, to be fair, is like half the plot of Twilight, so I guess it works. And that's not me shading Twilight, it just, it matches up surprisingly well. But I find it funny that they put this out because Hallmark did put out a Halloween romance movie this year, and I actually enjoyed it quite a lot. It was called Three Bed, Two Bath, One Ghost, <laughs> which That's is an amazing perfect. title. It's actually surprisingly really good. And that was led also by Julie Gonzalo. So I found it funny to see her transition from you know, the mean girl of the early 2000s to the romantic Hallmark lead, as so many of the 2000s women did. I have a fun fact. I also researched that actor a bit when I was watching a Cinderella story because in that film, it just seems like she should be so famous because she's so good in that mean girl role. But I didn't really recognize her from anything else. But I found out a little tidbit, which is that she met her husband in a Hallmark movie. Oh, that's so cute. They made a little Christmas that's movie adorable. and then they got married. <laughs> they should definitely make a meta Hallmark movie yeah, that like, tells that. that story. Where it's like two actors. <laughs> who, like, Wait, which which Hallmark movie did they meet on? Oh, that's a great question. My, I don't the only reason that I asked is fact. because my my work bestie's mom wrote a book romance novel for Hallmark that became a movie. So the book was better. That's not the name of it. That's okay, just a fact. <laughs> I like to Google. So it was a 2018 movie called The Sweetest oh, Heart. That's cute. That would have been a great podcast moment if if that was the one that your friend's mom wrote. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that came out in 2020, maybe, though. Maybe people meet on the set of that one, and that ends up being our podcast in 10 so. years. We'll have to bring my friend's mom on <laughs> to talk about it. I'm down for that. The one, The one last thing I wanted to say about a Cinderella story is, although it is pretty pretty well agreed to be the best of these it did launch a franchise of cinderella adaptations so included in those is 2008's another cinderella story starring selena gomez also a pretty good one a cinderella story once upon a song starring lucy hale in 2011 which i remember being definitely not as good but you know lucy hale's pretty awesome a cinderella story christmas wish in 2019, starring Lara Moreno. That one's just bad. <laughs> it's on Netflix. It, 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 
I watched it to mock it. I'm I'm sorry. I like her, but she unfortunately is not in great movies. Yeah, I I like her too, but it was it was very much a you were a Disney star kind of movie. I think I think her Prince Charming was Mason from Wizards of Waverly Place. So it was very yeah. And then the most recent one is from 2021, A Cinderella Story Starstruck, which I have not seen yet, starring Bailey Madison, which I find hilarious because she was also young Snow White in Once Upon a Time. So she's all connected in this world. I feel like I didn't look up the order of events here, but I sort of feel like a Cinderella story kind of kicked off these like modern adaptations of these fairy tales because Peacock was trying to serve me or Max, wherever I watched it. I don't know. Streaming service was trying to serve me. Sydney White starring um, Amanda Bynes, which is a Snow White tale, like right after this. Like, come on, you know, I'm watching Cinderella's this week. I can't <laughs> do this right now. I do think it's interesting that there it's, it's not a Disney production, but it is definitely borrowing for like former former Disney kid stars as like that's our casting move. It's like we're gonna do we're gonna put a former Disney kid, like a Disney Channel star, in a Cinderella movie and just like step three profit. Like I think it's funny also because especially at the time these movies were being made, I have always thought Lucy Hill looks like Selena Gomez. <laughs> I could see that. So just put him in the <laughs> franchise. <laughs> And, you know, Bailey Madison is now the lead of the newest Pretty Little Liars It uh, all comes show. back around. <laughs> yes, yes. I Not to spoil things, but her character does have a connection with Lucy Hale's Arya. So, yes, it, it all connects together with the Disney of it all. I'm actually shocked that Zendaya did not get one of these. And it's entirely possible that they pitched it and she rejected it because she was trying to move on from <laughs> But she's definitely, like, the next person I would assume should have been in this line. I can't believe there were that many Cinderella stories. That list just kept going. I was like, oh, and then you're, like, in the recent one. And I was like, wait, there's another one. I could be wrong, but I believe that the most recent one is set on a farm. And, like, it's it's about, like... Learning to to ride horses. I, <laughs> I think. love that. I could be mixing up Bailey Madison movies, <laughs> but I do find it funny that ninety percent of them are like, "You're going to become a pop star," and then this one was like, "You know what? Horses. We need to relate." The, the, to yeah, the I was going to say the horse girl needs needs their own movie. <laughs> An untapped market. Oh, so I have a question. And I know that these sequels were not part of the <laughs> planned discussion, but real quick, is Selena Gomez music in her movie or like does Lucy Hale sing in hers? Just because the a Cinderella story starring Hillary Duff is a vehicle for Hillary Duff to get some royalties off that music. There's like two or three of her songs in it. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, Selena Gomez's is, is about her dancing and Lucy Hale's is about her singing. Okay, perfect. So those are the big things in those. Lara Moreno's is also about her being a performer and a singer. And of course, she was in Austin and Alley, so pushing her singing career. And I just looked up Bailey Madison's version, and it specifies, this is just the synopsis online, small town farmer Finley Tremaine, 
I like that they threw Tremaine in there. Uh, aspires to spread her wings and become a budding artist. When a Hollywood okay. film crew arrives, she's determined to grab their attention and land a role in the production. I'm sure that is not awkward at all. I, I'm sure this is yet another star vehicle, although, to be honest, Bailey Madison doesn't need it. She's been producing since she was, like, three. <laughs> I never watched that, actually, but the cast is all hot and popular, so they come up on my IMDb <laughs> a lot. <laughs> You're like, I'm familiar with the IMDb page for <laughs> the show. <laughs> I think that when we talk about a Cinderella story, the the weird franchise is is kind of part of what it became. But just to to kind of quickly summarize each of our movies, I want you to just pick like two to three key words of like what makes this movie Cinderella to you. So obviously most of them use the name, but like what elements of the stories are we talking about? Do we have a prince? Do we have the orphan step family dynamic? What what elements do you think are kind of your key words for how Cinderella your story is? I'm just going to say that mine is like really on point Cinderella. I mean, we have the dead dad, <laughs> the uh although I guess the in the grim version he's not dead, he just like goes along with everything. We have the fairy godmother, the ball, the stepsisters, the stepmother, the prince, you know, he has to get married, the glass slipper, everything is the is the same, pretty much. The only difference is that I didn't realize until recently that the Pearl version had a two-night ball, and all the adaptations seem to have a one-night ball. There's actually some versions that have three-night balls. I believe that was actually something that we or that I found when we were looking at Disney, that they had considered mm. doing a few nights, and they were like, you know, we just need to trim this because Cinderella was very much a cost-saving, money-earning right. Disney film. But I know that there, there's a lot of versions where like they actually have time where they meet each other and know each other. Unlike Disney's I Saw You Once and So yeah. This Is Love, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, Disney was very much three balls in this economy <laughs> the, uh, the similarly the rogers and hammer sign is like the 10 minutes ago <laughs> like and then that's it yeah for uh ella enchanted uh, it very much plays up the fairy godmother element uh there's like a whole fairy godmother prologue where she gives her a quote-unquote gift that ella is uh obedient when given direct commands which has implications for the story for sure <laughs> And then the stepmother and stepsisters also play a, ver a very big role in the story. And I would say that those are the two things that tie it most closely to the classic Cinderella fairy tale, whereas it, it, sort, it plays very fast and loose with kind of the rest of the, the elements. There is a prominent slipper in Ever After, but it's not glass. The step family is definitely an important part. Like you said, they mentioned the term Cinderella, she is made to work as a servant in her own estate. The prince has to, you know, do his duty by finding a wife. It's not as frivolous as the king just wants grandchildren. There's actually, like, contracts with other countries involved, which I do appreciate. They have a ball. It's a huge deal. And um, 
I mean, this goes back to the original, original, like the Grimm's fairy tale, not as much the Disney version, but at the end of Ever After, the step family ends up being punished for their crimes against Danielle, against Cinderella. I do think that's going to be an interesting question. I didn't put it in the list that I sent you all, but I do want to know how each of your stories deal with the step family. Because in the Grimm version, they summon birds to peck the eyes out of the stepsisters. In Perot, I believe she ends up finding, like, good eligible men for the stepsisters, but the stepmother yeah, is just kind of she doesn't. She doesn't punish them because she wants them to still like her, <laughs> which feels very weird. But yeah, not, not relatable. relatable at all. Couldn't be me. I think that there's definitely, whenever we see the step family, there's a, like, revenge fantasy for a lot of watchers that were like, yeah, I want to see her fall off a cliff. I want to see her eyes get pecked out. And it, it will be interesting to see kind of which stories kind of lean into that and which ones don't. Because as I recall, the Disney movie just, like, they don't exist anymore. Like, she leaves and that's that's it. We don't care. Which is... Fine, I guess. But it doesn't give you kind of the emotional... What am I... Where's the word? Uh, the emotional catharsis of either forgiveness or retaliation. And just to, to finish up with this section, both of my movies, for being so different, they have a surprising number of similarities. They're actually both set in California, which is just an odd tidbit. Both of them lean very, very hard on the unfairness of the stepfamily. That's kind of the biggest deal. And then the ball isn't necessarily a way out, but it is the pivotal turning point in the character's servitude to their family. So it's not so much the romance of the ball, but it's definitely using that as kind of a set piece for moving the story forward. Oddly, in both Cinderella and A Cinderella Story. So the next question that I was curious about, and I think I have three questions, but we can kind of talk about them all, is kind of just, how do you see the movies playing with Disney? So all of the movies that we talked about came out after Disney's version of Cinderella, and... Some of them directly reference Disney. Most of them don't, but they have little homages to it. So I'm curious if you guys saw any clear references to Disney, any ways that the movie relies on you seeing the Disney movie to kind of understand what's going on. Or, as some of them did, reference Disney not Cinderella movies, which was definitely something prominent in Cinderella. I think that Ever After is the whole story just contained in that film. So I don't necessarily think that you have to have seen the Disney movie or really even be aware of Cinderella in pop culture. But if you are, you get the appreciation of how they're changing the story, how they're bringing it into the real world, and that there's this like meta narrative and framing device being used. I didn't really understand that as a kid, so I would kind of tune out until the story gets going, and then I felt very confused by the ending in a way that, you know, I understand now as an adult watching this movie. 
Because Ever After does a lot of work to make Cinderella an active character and like a real protagonist. She is very forceful with her convictions, which is actually a word that they use to describe her thoughts and feelings in the film itself. Um, And just there's so much more, so many more, I should say, characters in Ever After than there are in the Disney film. Thinking specifically about Jacqueline, the stepsister, who is less awful than the rest of the step family. And so she gets this nice arc and presumably a happy ending of her own, which... I think is nice because yeah. she's played by Melanie Linsky. That, that bit about the having one less one stepsister that's not as bad was also something that was in the pro version of the fairy tale that I didn't really. Oh, okay. I, I think they said like not. They described her as like not so unkind or something like that. I'm like, oh, so she's a little less bad. Mm-hmm. That actually comes up in the Disney sequels oh, too. I've never um, seen any of those. That in yeah. the second one, there's. Yeah, so in the second one, there's a whole plot where um, I think Anastasia ends up getting her own love interest and she's like, oh, wait, I I did some awful things. Like, she becomes a person. And then Cinderella 3 definitely plays with that because for Cinderella 3, the stepmother gets the fairy godmother's wand and basically tricks the she pulls in ursula she tries to trick the prince into believing that anastasia is the girl that he's in love with by like literally transforming her into her and various other things and anastasia gets to kind of play with like wait a minute like she's trying so hard and he actually likes her i think this has gone too far so that does seem to be a bit of a recurring trait yeah, I, I do like the way that they sort of play with that in El Enchanted, where you have you have Hattie um, played by Lucy Punch and Olive played by Jennifer Hingham, and and Hattie is you know the like ultimate fangirl of the prince in this, like I said, very very pop culture aware take on Cinderella, and then the other sister is a dummy who likes to, who is also a kleptomaniac, and that's like most of her personality, and she's just kind of like. She's like goes along with her sister on everything, but like clearly doesn't really have like any sort of moral compass. Like she's not a bad person. She just doesn't even know what being a good or bad person is really is really all about. The way that she's played. And I think again, I, I feel like this this version is not necessarily bringing in any elements or or directly referencing the Disney Cinderella, but it's sort of playing off the idea of the Disney fairy tale and very much this feels almost like a a fairy tale satire more than it's played straight. Like they are sort of making fun of a lot of fairy tale tropes and also I think just romance genre tropes in general. Like there's a, there's a meet cute between Ella and the prince at the beginning of the movie. And, you know, she doesn't like him at the beginning and then like, you know, they, they fall in, they actually do fall in love over the course of the movie and not just like meet, you know, at the end and, immediately fall in love and so i think it's it's playing off your it's expecting you to know what the sort of traditional version of cinderella is because that makes this you know more interesting and more fun to watch but it's not it's not there i didn't pick up on them like doing any like digs at disney Um, at least not to cinderella there is a a talking snake 
that I thought very much looked like Sir Hiss from the animated Robin Hood. So that that could be a, a potential reference to, to Disney, but not to Cinderella. One thing I just wanted to jump in on with the stepsisters in Ella Enchanted, Lucy Punch is the Cinderella stepsister. I love her. Because she's played the role three different times in different movies. I can't find uh, the third of it, but I, I am seeing multiple different fairy tale things. But she was also one of the stepsisters in uh, Into the Woods in 2014. And I believe that she's been in one of the other Cinderella adaptations as a stepsister. It's a very weird typecasting, but that's that's like who she has become. And I just find that yeah, hilarious. I, I best know her as not actual Juliet, but the actress playing Juliet in the version, the stage adaptation of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet that is inside Hot Fuzz. <laughs> that's so specific. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited to get to do this. I know her because she is in two episodes of New Girl. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I feel like it wouldn't be a podcast with Melissa if New Girl didn't get mentioned at some point. It wouldn't. I have a strong brand. (laughs) New Girl also has a very wide net for like guest appearances. Like I feel like like they draw from a lot of different different places. To um, go back to the 1965 Cinderella, um, I like to think that the Disney Cinderella and the 1965 Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella are not in competition. They are both children of the Charles Perrault fairy tale. Um, I don't think that they're really in conversation with each other at all, except for the fact that they are based on the same story. So Cinderella is treated as a slave in her own house. There is like a guy that comes up with the prince in the first scene who actually calls her slavey, which was something that made me like the hair on the back of my neck, like stand up. There's the very similar, like the fairy godmother changed all of the mice and the pumpkin and all of that, but like forgot to change her dress. And so she had a reminder like that is a very familiar thing in many um different uh, Cinderella's. You know, there's the whole slipper try-on scene. One thing I will say that the because this is so it's because this is a product like a stage production, they don't you don't have as much time to tell story because everything's like moving around and everything and there's dance numbers. So like they don't really drop you into the story like where you really know that her you know the story of her parents and her her mom being lovely and that like her stepmom sucks like you don't know that right away she i i get i have this in the notes for a little bit later like talking about how cinderella is is ex- like described and everything but like she's just like the the only thing she says up in the whole movie about like her family is that her dad is in heaven <laughs> like that is all you get and it's just really strange and so i i don't think you had to have like seen cinderella but it does help to know from other versions like what actually happened with her family because they don't i mean she lives with her stepmother and stepsisters but they don't like get into how that happened at all I would never say these two are the same movie, and yet I keep having the same commentary for both of them. 
Cinderella and a Cinderella story both do a lot mm-hmm. of referencing to the Disney movies and to Disney in general. One of the first things that I had noticed was the costume choices. So in a Cinderella story is almost always wearing blue. Uh, which, as we discussed, Cinderella doesn't actually wear blue in the Disney movie, but she does in the Disney princess marketing, which would have been more prominent in the 2000s. But there is a scene where she is wearing the exact shade of blue, a choker, and her hair up. And it is it is intended to be the exact same outfit, but in a modern setting. There is a just offhanded line in Ever After when the stepsisters are preparing their gowns for this event they're going to to be seen by the prince. So maybe he'll pick them and they say like, oh, everyone will be wearing blue. Like we can't wear blue because everyone will be wearing it. And since I had listened to your all's episode about Cinderella and I had been thinking about the blue versus the silver dress, I was like, "Ooh, that's a reference. (laughs) Yeah, there's actually a oddly kind of similar line in Cinderfella that may or may not be a reference to it, because I don't know in 1960 if they had established Cinderella as blue yet, but they do reference that Princess Charming from Monrovia, uh, that her country's color is a periwinkle blue, well, more of a gray, but with blue (laughs) tints, and that felt very much like a reference to that as well. The other thing that I saw in a Cinderella story is that the stepsisters are always color coded to match Anastasia mm. and Drizella from the Disney movies. They have various outfits. They're usually the exact same outfit, but different colors. And it's almost always the exact same colors from the Disney movie, which I just found to be a really fun kind of running gag. Um, because it's not it's not super overt, but it definitely kind of hits at that same point. Cinderfella goes goes all the way. So the fairy godfather actually summons Cinderella at one point, and she is wearing like copy paste make it in the real world Cinderella's pre ball gown outfit. So the like rag dress kind of outfit absolutely identical color coded the the shape of it every bit of it oddly he then transitions her into a ball gown and it has nothing to do with the disney one so they were trying to be very careful with what they could get away with there and then they throw it out entirely two minutes later well maybe a half hour later where they have the fairy godfather come out wearing a absolutely identical copy of one of the outfits of the fairies from uh, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, I love those fairies so much. So he's dressed as Flora in the orange, but he's got the cap. He's got exactly the outfit. He makes a throwaway joke to he, like, once dated this witch and he stole her clothes. So that's how they kind of play with it. But the clothing is very much like a thing in these two movies. The other thing that was kind of funny, they have, let me see. So Edwin is the fairy godfather who was the voice for the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. And the more uh, 
into the fairy tales he starts going, the more he uses the Mad Hatter voice. And I get that that's just Edwin's voice, but he was putting it on and taking it off at various points. So I definitely think that was intended to be connected there. And then just the most overt line, the fella has a villain song, um, oddly enough. Uh, he, he basically has a song that goes, nice guys never get ahead, so if women like assholes, I'll do that instead. And that's literally his song. But he has a line in the song, quote, I've been a mouse for long enough, bub. I might even resign from the Mickey Mouse Club. This movie <laughs> knew what it was doing, and it throws it in as often as it possibly can. I was going to ask about the fairy godfather, and then I realized that uh, Cinder Cinderella comes out well before the godfather does. So, like, because immediately that's where my mind went. It was like, oh, they're going to have somebody do, like, a, a Brando impression. I was like, no, this is, like, <laughs> several that's years too early. <laughs> the fairy godfather, he he says that he personally handled the original Cinderella's case. But then he says that the female reporters of the time changed it because they don't want men to be able to have anything good. And he specifically says that they altered the story because, quote, they're like the Russians. They want credit for inventing everything. That's funny to me only because of Chekhov in the original series of Star Trek is Russian and is constantly saying that Russians invented everything. And that came out like in 1967, I think, because Chekhov wasn't in season one. And I'm just hysterical that that is like, I don't think I realized that that was a trope that people believed. And I think that it's ridiculous it's fun it's amusing in star trek like it's charming it does not sound charming in cinderfella it was at this point in cinderfella that i got onto the letterbox to find out if people liked this movie i had to know <laughs> because I if i only saw one liked, person that even saw this movie if people liked it and i hated it i was gonna have to p turn it off because i don't want to come on to someone else's podcast and be like sorry about that thing you like i thought it was hot trash <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad because it is from 1960 and it does have all the things that you've mentioned and it is a way into talking about the way that the cinderella story can be used to talk about different things it's just like not a great movie and i especially do not have the sensibility for catching up with movies from the 60s it just that whatever that is missed me except for one two three of course Elise, always <laughs> i just want to defend movies of the 60s and say that i a lot of them are great i think that jerry lewis is just not great when i was talking to my mom last night um in my mom's 70 i i was telling my parents about this movie cinderfellow even though i didn't finish it and they like I don't think they, they had, like, they're like, who's in it? And I told them, and they're like, oh. <laughs> like, my mom's like, I can't stand him. <laughs> like, the comedy, it wasn't even the kind of comedy where I'm like, oh, that's from 1960. It, like, wasn't, it just wasn't funny at all. Like, it wasn't like, 
funny because it was a like you know some people will be like oh that you just you don't have a sense of humor it was supposed to be just a joke like i can't imagine on what planet any of that was supposed to be funny it's just stupid and it just doesn't make sense that this person has lived to an adulthood and like still acts like this it's just not it's a plot hole (laughs) i wanted to punch him in the face the whole time how many times have you used that orange juice maker? <laughs> okay, I I will say the they give an explanation for that and they say that fellow was specifically chosen because and and the specific quote is something to the effect of he's not handsome, he's not enjoyable and he's <laughs> not smart. And they're like, if this guy can get a princess, then women will really yes. be put in their place. <laughs> so horrible. Not that that makes No, I understand better. what you're saying, though. Uh, but oh they, they decided to do something, I, and they I, did it. And <laughs> I can respect that, even if I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> it takes a lot for me to turn something so, off that's, like, homework adjacent. <laughs> and I was going to say, for, for those of you listening who don't know Melissa all that well... This is like the third time I can remember her saying a movie is bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like in Melissa life, likes most things, or at like, will at least have like very like positive. Like, I have like a high tolerance for liking stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for her That's to call so something true. hot trash is like that is a strong like anti recommendation. Like the the incel men's rights speech just like really put me off, and I couldn't get back on. <laughs> <laughs> I think this I think that's completely fair. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even make it that far. I don't think that this is a good movie and I don't think I I actually think this is a dangerous movie. I am slightly worried about incels finding this movie because of of the views it puts forth. I will say if I give this every drop of the benefit of the doubt, I can see an interesting arc here specifically in that they specify that every part of the princess's being has been bound to falling in love with him like she she has less of a personality than the prince in cinderella disney's version and that is hard to do she literally barely speaks in the entire movie and then at the end she's just like but i love you desperately with every bit of my soul and it's more or less implied that magic did that and that she is being forced to love him. And the benefit of the doubt that I will give it is when we see a woman in that position, we feel disgusting. And if that's what happened to the prince in the original version, we should also feel disgusting in that situation. That being said, I don't think it was well done. I like giving people alternatives. My suggestion is if you want to see people playing with gender bending and playing with actual, like, toxic traits and how women can epitomize them, watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Despite the, the title and because of it, it does a lot of work playing with the idea that, like, the girl does things that everyone thinks are romantic and then a guy starts doing them and we all go, oh, wait. This is really messed up. Let's let's deal with this. So so yeah, my my suggestion is if you if you think that kernel is worth it, there are <laughs> other pieces of media that follow that that path. 
I mean, not that I'm really even aware of like what incels are up to at any given moment in time. I do think it would be really funny if they all suddenly like got really into Jerry Lewis. Like that would just be a very <laughs> like just hilarious turn of events to me. <laughs> I feel like it just seems like that wouldn't surprise me. I will say I, I did a bit of research into Jerry Lewis. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. And I'm this is not necessarily the time or place for it, but Two, two things that I will mention from my research. First off, he apparently sexually harassed and or assaulted basically every female co-star he had, including yep. Princess Charming. Yeah, I had read that movie. as well. Many women spoke out against him and she basically said, at first he just came on to me and I said no. When I came on to his second movie, he basically would not leave me alone and would force me to attend late night meetings alone with him. But because I was established, I was able to escape it. I don't think others would have. So when we're looking at this as a movie that he had a lot of control over, I'm not sure I want to give the benefit of the doubt, especially given part of his controversy, 1998 at the Aspen U.S. Comedy Arts Festival, he was asked which female comics he admired, and his answer was, quote, I don't like female comedians. A woman doing comedy doesn't offend me, but it sets me back quite a bit. I, as a viewer, have trouble with it. I think of her as a producing machine that brings babies into the world. Yeah, not great, Bob. So as much as I really want to believe that somebody had a decent idea at the current corner of this movie... Jerry Lewis certainly destroyed any trace of it, I would say. Boo, hiss, that guy. <laughs> so as as we often say on this, how on earth do we move forward from <laughs> that? And And the only thing I can do is say, let's move on to talking about characters. So we have Cinderella's, we have princes, we often have a fairy godmother and a stepfamily. How did y'all's movies portray these various characters, especially compared to the fairly bland one-noteness of the Disney versions of these characters? If you think the Disney movie was one note, then my movie was like a half a note. <laughs> I actually felt, not the prince, but I felt like Cinderella had like, Cinderella has a personality, I think in the Disney movie. Like, she's nice. She hates Lucifer the cat. Um, I love cats, but that cat sucks. The Cinderella in the Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella is so babyish and childlike that it's actually almost hard to, like, listen to her sing and talk. She's way too ignorant the only interaction she has with the prince is that she offers him water and then says he's thirsty and i'm like is that supposed to be a euphemism and then i remember that this is not that movie did not come out in the last 10 years <laughs> she's very like chatty like she literally tells the prince that her dad is in heaven it's very weird she tells the prince that her stepmother will beat her if she talks to anyone, like, any stranger. Like, she just almost, like, word vomits. Like, I, but it didn't come off as, like, I'm nervous, so I'm just saying things. Like, it was just, the dialogue in this was just 
not the best. But she's just also very, um, she just seems like a little ditzy. I don't know. I hate to like say that, but it seemed like if she was like in a Bond movie, she would be like someone that like Sean Connery would like push to the floor, like as a comedic joke or something. <laughs> she was also like physically like filthy, like she had dirt all over her face. And it's really funny because when the fairy godmother, like, gets her dolled up, she, like, looks nice and clean. And when midnight comes, she, like, is back to having dirt on her face. So it's not like (laughs) she took a shower. It's just, like, the dirt got put back. But she's also, like, she's, like, implied that she's very stunning when she shows up to the ball there was literally 30 seconds of silence and i thought i accidentally muted my television and i had not (laughs) but yeah the the family is very the mom's like a bitch to everyone including her own daughters um she's just like one of them she's commenting your knee keeps creaking and the other one she's like stop batting your eyes and it reminded me of pride and prejudice when like the they're mad at like kitty bennett for like coughing and she's like i don't cough for my own amusement and it was very much like the similar like yes so then later it they're very comedic so like the step the stepsisters like dancing with the prince and just like her eyes are just like wide open because she's trying not to like bat them and the prince to the other one's like what's that noise i keep hearing and it's like the creaking knee so like the prince is kind of douchey and like boring and arrogant and like i didn't find him interesting at all yeah, he was not charming. He was kind of, like, a little mean. The one with the creaky knee, like, she couldn't help it. I mean, she Can sucks, too. Can you creak too, in time like... with the music? <laughs> yeah. She, he asked her if she could creak in time with the music, and, he, and she tries, and then she's like, I can't control it. And then he's like, okay, I'm done dancing with you now. He also, like, was very... I so I appreciate like a comedic stepsister. Like I would they're mean, but I rather have them be like a little bit ridiculous too. Like it makes that was like a very enjoyable part of the movie for me. But the prince is so he's so formal. He calls his dad sire, which I found to be really funny. I forgot to write this down, but when they were singing the song like the prince is giving a ball that was me. That was the, the uh, me singing it version. Each, like, the prince, the queen, and the king each have, like, literally ten names that they just keep saying. And it's, like, so bananas. And it's literally, like, every royal name you've ever heard. Like, they even, like, throw Leopold in there. But, yeah, everyone was... I think my favorites were the um, were the stepsisters just because they were so ridiculous and they made really funny faces. Oh, and also... The fairy godmother was great. She just, like, was a really good singer and was beautiful and just showed up. She showed up a couple times, which was kind of surprising, but, yeah. They were kind of boring, <laughs> if I'm being honest. The rest of them. And for, so for Ella Enchanted, it, it, like I said, it's very much sort of trying to be commentary on the whole fairy tale princess idea and even... The Cinderella concept in general. So this version of of Ella of Frell, um, she has been uh, gifted, quote unquote, the gift of 
like mandatory obedience by her fairy godmother Lucinda, who's played by Vivica Fox. She literally has to obey every command given to her by anyone, even if she doesn't want to do it. And so the tension is set up because Ella is very much concerned about oppression that's going on in the kingdom because uh, Sir Edgar, who is the prince's evil uncle, uh, has moved all the uh, non-human inhabitants of the kingdom into the forest. And it's basically like literally just a colonial style land grab, forcing out an indigenous population and segregating them into a, into a less uh, habitable area, uh, including giants and, and ogres and elves. Uh, Ella is, is very, she's very passionate about this cause and about social justice in general, which was kind of a cool element to add to the character. And then, you know, that also sort of reflects the, the sort of moral justice in in the core Cinderella story where like oh because she's a good person she ends up in a much better position than like her family who sucks a lot and so you know it 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 does really tie together it does give her a lot of personality oftentimes the thing that she the things that she is compelled to obey people with are things that she would not do naturally like steal things or be mean to people hattie is it sort of figures this this like this curse out on her own and starts using it for her own advantage, you know, and then the more people find out about it, the more people tend to take advantage of her while still making this a very PG movie at the same time. And the that element of the obedience curse was put there by the author of the novel as a way to sort of explain why Cinderella just, like, didn't run away and, like, did listen to her stepmother and stepsisters. Which is interesting because that's the thing I never thought about because I just figured like, you know, she's basically a prisoner in her own home and like as other versions of the story imply, like her stepmother might just beat her if she doesn't listen. So it it's like solving a problem I didn't even realize existed, but within it there's a there is actually a really interesting sort of like theme and ultimately commentary about consent, you know, and especially around like like love and doing things for people and telling people things like it, it is sort of woven into the story in a way that actually like makes sense kind of all the way through. I would say I also never thought about that. I always just assumed that Cinderella a had nowhere else to go like in the, you know, it was olden times and she was a single woman. Like where was she going to go? But I also, so, like, she's getting fed at her house. Like, I know that's not great, like, but at least there's food there. But I, I just wanted to also say, um, in this moment, while Ryan was talking, it just occurred to me that Ella is the end of Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> and then her uh, stepmother here, who is named Dame Olga, doesn't really play a huge role in this version of the story. Uh, the stepsisters are more prominent as a, like, not actual, but at least from... Hattie's perspective, imagine romantic rival between for the prince's attention and affection. Um, and because they add, you know, the the sort of evil uncle who's ruling the kingdom, it, it you know, it, it sort of minimizes the the stepmother as as the villain of the story. And here the prince is named Char, and he's the son of the king uh that spoiler alert, uh his uncle murdered the king. 
to take over the kingdom and he's basically treated like a like a teen idol you know he has a group of women all chasing him around at all times you know and then when he's away from the spotlight it's like oh like that's that's not really how i am and you know it's definitely playing on those tropes like things that go back to like elvis movies from the 50s and you know the beatles and you know all, all those kinds of tropes around male pop stars that attract a lot of female fans it, it's really playing up those tropes in a, in a way that's like really fun and then you know they make him like a sweet guy with a personality and he like is falling for her and she is like reluctantly falling for him slash again teaching him about social justice and you know she like makes it so that he actually talks to the giants about why they're upset about what's been done. And of course, being the sort of himbo that he is, he's like, oh, I'll just, I'll just talk to my uncle about it and we'll get this all fixed. And, uh, you know, he almost gets stabbed by a dagger. So like, <laughs> um, they, you know, he, they, like I said, they make him kind of a himbo, but he is, he's a nice person, but it gives, again, it gives Ella more of her own like arc and more um, agency within the story that she's kind of driving the change in him as well as like reluctantly falling in love with him. Yeah. For ever after it shares a lot of that DNA with Ella enchanted. Danielle um, has a mind for justice also in ever after she is an abolitionist. She is the best. She talks shit right directly to the prince's face ultimately like she ends up saving herself in this movie from there's like a legitimate villain that comes after her um and she talks shit to his face too and you know beats him at his own game basically so you know danielle is just the coolest and then something that is special i think forever after which is apparent in some of these other adaptations is that Danielle and her father were genuinely best friends and that love and her relationships with the, the folks that are working at their estate is like, that's why she stays there. You know, there doesn't need to be an obedience curse because she has this like love for her family's land and their house and the people who have been working at the estate, like these people raised her. So she stays to care for them, which is how she ends up meeting the prince, which is to go rescue um, one of these folks that her stepmother had actually like sold to pay for her debts. So that's how that all ends up meshing together to start the story. It does the same thing that the 1965 film does, which is that Danielle and the prince, you know, meet ahead of time and they have, it's not just uh, here's the water. It's like they're very antagonistic. She hits him in the head with an apple because he's stealing one of their horses. And but he pays her, and so she, you know, she says like, "Hey, man, like you can't just can't just steal my stuff." And the prince is portrayed as just like he's noble, but he's also very put upon, and he's very arrogant. But he, you also see his anxiety about whether or not love is a real thing to be had and whether or not he'll be able to find it. Um, but he's just like very stubborn. I'm listening to a lot of bad qualities about him, but he does grow through the film. Yeah. And like the stepsisters specifically Marguerite are so awful, but it's hilarious. And so it's fine. <laughs> like it's totally <laughs> fine that someone this bad lives in the world because it's extremely funny. <laughs> 
I would say I also really liked that Danielle had people at the house that loved her. Um, mm-hmm. That was something that was very different from the other versions that I watched. You know, in the original, like, Disney, she just has, like, the horses and the mice, and they mm-hmm. are quite lovely, but I don't know that I would rate them amongst um, having, like, actual humans. The staff at the... And, like, she's good to them, and they're good to her, and it's, like, that's her family. And I just thought that was really nice. And her friend Gustav, who is just a lovely boy who is never, like, jealous of her romance (laughs) with the prince. Bad haircut, but just, like, (laughs) extremely good vibes. Yes. He was lovely, too. Gustav, could that could that be shortened to Gus Ooh, or or perhaps wow, Gus? I don't you think know. That. I think it could. <laughs> I didn't think of that either. <laughs> I was gonna say I do find it interesting that most of them, even if they do discuss the Disney, the the animals who are half of the <laughs> Cinderella animated movie don't usually get in it so i i appreciate that my mind is blown right now uh you know I, that's <laughs> what i'm here for i appreciate um, that. i think i think the idea of why does she stay is is kind of an interesting one that a cinderella story also deals with in kind of a similar way she says outright that she stays because her stepmother has all of her dad's ma- money and she wants to go to Princeton. So there's that side of it. But the bigger thing is her dad owned this diner and her stepmother has taken it over and completely made it over. But the staff is the same. And so instead of having a fairy godmother, she has the staff of her dad's diner who are her family, specifically Rhonda, who runs the restaurant. She's... She's basically the the godmother. And I think that that does some really interesting plays where we can see that she wants to help keep her dad's legacy alive, even if it is, you know, under her stepmother's name. That being said, other than that, the characters in A Cinderella Story are so different (laughs) from any other version. Because it is first and foremost a 2000s teen drama. So it it does set us up with the first two scenes of the movie are almost cut and pasted from Disney. We get the storybook telling us what happens, followed by Cinderella wake up and make breakfast. So so we've got a bit of that, but then it basically from there it deviates. We've got our our Cinderella is Sam. She's just a girl whose dad died, whose stepfamily are awful. The prince is the most popular guy in school. The prince aspect of it is twofold. First off, he literally dresses as Prince Charming at their costume ball. But also, they both want to go to Prince Tin. And so she become. They meet online. They have an anonymous relationship, which I like because they have that dynamic. It's like giving the water. Where she is Princeton girl. Right. Having that connection beforehand is great. You know, one of the great things in Cinderella's story is they have that connection, but without the anonymous side, he doesn't know she exists and or he treats her like garbage. So when she learns who he is, she doesn't want to put up with it. 
which is a really fun way to play with kind of the she's keeping a secret because his public persona is the problem in many ways. And that gives them both places to grow and to, to stretch each other, which I really like. In the Rodgers and Hammerstein version, there's like one line where the prince is like, you know, when I'm with you, I'm the real me, not the me I am with everybody else. And then it just never gets mentioned again. And that's very much at the core of Prince Charming's character in A Cinderella Story. He's a secret poet who wants to go to Princeton, and his dad wants him to be the football star going to U, uh, USC, I think? UCLA? I, Probably I don't know. USC. Going to another They school. have a big football program there. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, from dating experience in my own life, those are always the worst guys. Because <laughs> it's like... You find out later that they're kind of just an asshole in general and that if they're not nice to everyone, like, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> what I do like best about their relationship is they both have epiphanies about who they want to be and what they want their lives to be that are not necessarily because of each other. He does not save her. She does not save him. The diner saves her, and she says, you know what, I I deserve more than this. I'm going to go live with somebody else. I'm not putting up with this. And she tells him, I'm not putting up with you treating me like this, because she was humiliated in front of the school, and he just kind of Waiting let it for you is like waiting for rain in this drought. <laughs> Useless and disappointing. Disappointing. <laughs> Second best line in the movie Second only to the stepmother, you know, I've been waiting until you were old enough to tell you this. You're not very pretty, and you're not very bright. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because again, the stepmother and the stepsisters, I think, have gone from being the core villains to being hilariously awful. And I'm here for it. I'm not saying I want them in my life. But the the depiction yeah. of especially the stepmother in a Cinderella story is just beautiful. I, I I love the way she acts. There's a whole scene where she's like, I'm so sorry that, you know, my daughters aren't being treated well. And they're like, you don't look upset. And she's like, oh, that's the Botox. And that that's just so, so accurate to me to to what the stepmother should be. So I feel like A Cinderella Story, it does give this depth to most of the characters. And then the step family is just terrible, and we accept that that's who they are. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to think about, like, what, like, how evil is the stepmother? Because uh, when I was just in uh, Disney and watching their uh, Halloween show, which is the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus come back and summon other Disney villains to try to form an alliance and make Halloween last forever. And it, it's funny because, like, the other villains are, like, you know, the evil voodoo sorcerer from Princess and the Frog and, like, Maleficent and the evil queen from Snow White and Jafar and then also, like, the stepmom from Cinderella. And I'm like, I don't know if she's, like, on that level. That level, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say that's one area 
and this is spoilers. I'm just going to keep bringing up Once Upon a Time. In the final season, Lady Tremaine is a main character, and her she has a tragic backstory, as all good villains should. She was actually Rapunzel. She got trapped in a tower, and they they kind of flipped the step family on its head. They, and again, major spoiler alert, I'm sorry, but one of her daughters ends up her daughter and Cinderella both end up falling under the ice and the dad jumps in and only saves Cinderella. Oof. And the other dies. Brutal. And so she has a perfectly valid reason to to not to not like them. And so you can see where she's coming from, you can see where she's coming from. And then she basically decides that she's either going to steal the life and or soul of Cinderella or of her other daughter to bring back her dead daughter. And that takes her to top tier Disney villain, in my opinion. She's not just a bad mom. She's literally willing to rip somebody's soul and life force out. And I, I kind of like that because, yeah, otherwise she didn't let her stepdaughter get married to a prince oh no the way that you described (laughs) the way that you described um her like having that like backstory kind of reminds me of the movie cruella that came out a few years ago and like i assume you guys will get that to that eventually (laughs) down the road but like you know cruella didn't do anything wrong (laughs) her mom was literally killed by dalmatians Exactly. Fuck those Dalmatians. Sorry. <laughs> I I love all of that. Just to to quickly kind of go back to Cinderella to to cover the characters real quick. Only two characters change ever. Like I said, the princess exists to fall in love with Fella. The stepbrothers want money. That's that's it. The fairy godfather exists to put women in their place you know as as he should but interestingly the stepmother and then fella himself are are the only two characters that have change and this culminates in the best scene in the movie that i would actually say is a fantastic cinderella scene in any other movie and this takes me back to my question earlier of what are the consequences for the step family So, essentially, the whole concept is that Ella, his dad's ghost, speaks to him in his dreams. And, essentially, the dad hid all the money. So, they're trying to get Fella to to learn where the money is secretly hidden. And so, he reveals the money to them. And then, you know, he does that. He gets the girl. And then the stepfamily is, like, moving out. They're like, okay, we... We see we're not winning here. And he says, you love money and you raised your sons to love money. And I don't care about money. So if it will make you happy, take the money. I don't care anymore. And then he leaves. And I think that's so cool because there's actually this underlying interesting arc with Fella 
uh, he has this great conversation. I'm actually liking a few parts. He has this great conversation with the Godfather. Where he says, uh, you know, I like meeting persons and people. And when they ask him what the difference is, he says, well, persons are people who are rich and famous. And therefore, they're not people anymore. And that's actually, like, such a good line. And they play with it at the end that he's, he actually, his I Want song is, I never want to be a person. I like being a people. And so him having the money and saying, you know, if you really think this is going to make you happy, have it. Not having money hasn't changed my life. I'm not, I don't care. And that's such a cool arc. And the stepmother just gets hit with that. And she, like, freezes. And she apologizes to him. Her sons go to take the money. It's in a wheelbarrow. There's, like, a wheelbarrow <laughs> of just, like, all the money. And so they go over and they're, like, fishing through it. And she, like, hits their hand away. And she's like, don't. That's fellas money. And that is, in my opinion, that one, that one tiny piece is one of the best interactions between a Cinderella and their stepmother in any media. That is, that is the one scene I will fight for with this movie. I think that that actually does some really interesting plays. I like the Cinderella that doesn't need the money, that is okay with her life. Like, when his dad is telling him where the money is, he goes, oh good, I can buy my stepmother a nice sweater. Like, he genuinely does not care about the money. And that's such a, a like, weird, awesome take on it. Also, just brief note, you mentioned that in Rodgers and Hammerstein, she, like, mentions, oh yeah, my dad's in heaven. Uh, there is a throwaway line in Cinderfella that largely implies that the dad is in hell. Because <laughs> he's, he's talking to his dad. You don't see the dad. He's, he's laying there asleep, just talking out loud. But he's like, dad, you, you are sweating and you look so hot. <laughs> where, where have you been? And he pauses for a minute and he's like, oh, it is really hot down there. And then just moves on. And I, I kind of love that moment. Just <laughs> That's actually really funny. Never mentioned again. On, on that kind of, not the heaven hell, but on the, on the uh, step siblings aspect, I'm really curious what y'all's movies did with that. Because it's, it's an interesting place where they can really show growth or not. <laughs> or we get the revenge fantasy, which is also good. Yeah, I mean, I already sort of mentioned it with Ever After, but so essentially, like, Rodmilla and the sisters are asked to basically go and answer for all these lies that they've told throughout the movie because they were covering up Danielle's existence. They were, you know, doing all this stuff. And the queen asks, for someone at court to like speak for them and no one is coming up. And it's very funny because Rodmilla played amazingly by Angelica Houston is like, Oh, seems like a lot of people are on vacation <laughs> or whatever she says. Um, and then, you know, Danielle shows up the, the family did not even know that Henry and Danielle were married. And so that gets to be a reveal. And Danielle says, you know, like, I'll speak for you. Um, 
you know, I'm never going to think about you guys again after this because I'm going to go live my beautiful life with my beautiful husband. Uh, but you'll think about me every single day for the rest of yours. And she basically sentenced them to be like palace servants and they work in like the linen area of the like palace or wherever they do their laundry and they accidentally get dyed purple because they can't stop bickering because they're just horrible people down to the core. <laughs> it's very funny. I love when Angelica Houston has to like like pretends that she's like a manager at the at the like yes. new job that they have and she's just like giving like and they're like, no, you have to do the work too. <laughs> Yeah, in, in Ella Enchanted, um, it, it ends with, like, a big wedding between Ella and the prince, and the stepfamily just isn't even invited. So, like, they, by the time, like, they're really more, like, first act villains in this movie, whereas by the time you get to the end, it's really all about, you know, Sir Edgar Carrie's just being evil, and, you know, there there's a lot of plot stuff that happens at the end. And so, like, the... Step family isn't even invited to the wedding, and the movie ends with like literally just a big group dance number with a cover of Don't Go Breaking My Heart sung by Anne Hathaway and Jesse McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just love say that I love that they went the Bollywood route with that? That they're like, apparently we need to end with a musical number. Let's go all out. I know they had earlier musical numbers, but it felt very Bollywood to me. Yeah, no, it there's there I mean there's like there are definitely a a few musical numbers kind of scattered throughout, but it, it really is like the dance party ending. And like the more I think about this movie, it it obviously even including Carrie's is definitely riffing on the Princess Bride uh in a lot of different ways. But just the use of, you know, contemporary pop music in a sort of fantasy medieval setting makes me feel like they were like also drawing from A Knight's Tale, the uh, Heath Ledger movie that is awesome and is uh, came out like three years before. Like, I, I feel like they were the, the movie's biggest, uh, I think, biggest problem is that they made this as a tween girl movie. But like the plot of it, like there's enough stuff happening where like it really should have been like a PG-13 blockbuster that they were like trying to push out to everybody because I think there's enough in the story and they just didn't have like the budget or the tone or whatever to really match what is probably in like I imagine what what's the version of this is in the book and then you know they kind of leaned into that sort of more Shrek feel to the whole thing. I was just gonna say that the 1965 um Cinderella is very similar to the Disney movie and that it's a very happily ever after. They like go off instead of in a carriage together. They're both riding horses, and um, Cinderella is riding side saddle. Um, I don't know why I had written that in my notes, but I did. Um, but I don't, unless I miss something, I don't think we ever see the fa- her step family ever again. It's very similar to uh, Disney. A Cinderella story, really banks in on the consequences on the step family and we kind of get three moments of it so the first one is she confronts her stepmother and she's like you know what i'm not doing this anymore i'm not working for you i'm not putting up with this i'm gone and then all of the people at the diner are like you realize the only reason we were staying here is because of her and so if she's gone 
every one of us is leaving and your restaurant fails. Which is a fun moment where we see that, like, community supporting her. And then we see that she kind of, like, gets to build her own life. So she ends up moving in with one of the, the diner manager, Rhonda. One of the big things we haven't mentioned is that kind of paralleling the locked in the attic scene from the Disney movie, Sam's way out was applying to Princeton. And she gets in and her stepmother makes a fake letter saying she didn't. And so she eventually finds out the truth. And so she gets to do kind of the, like, I'm just moving on with my life and you don't matter of it all. And that seems like it's going to be like, a that's satisfying enough. And then we get a third one where she finds that the storybook that her dad used to read the story of Cinderella to her from mm. included his will that her stepmother signed. It says that she gets literally everything. She gets the diner, she gets the house, she gets the money. And so she gets to then go to the house, evict her stepfamily, take all the money. And I think the stepmom ends up basically like <laughs> being questioned by the cops about fraud. So we get a bit of the revenge fantasy too. I'm not sure it needed three kind of endings. I, I think they probably could have just picked one but it is kind of satisfying to see her get to like take it over all three of those don't involve the prince so it's not he rescued her it's either the diner rescued her her father rescued her or she rescued herself which i really appreciate because it goes back to the like idea that you shouldn't need your relationship you should want it and so her getting together with Austin because they want to be together and not because she needs to be saved, I think is is a really strong point in favor of their relationship. Yeah, in thinking about the relationship in Ella Enchanted between Ella and, and the prince, you know, it like I said, it does feel very like rom-com in a, in a good way where they have like the mute cute and then, you know, they, they bicker a lot and... She is like, doesn't like him because all the other girls are like him. And she is, for better or for worse, very not like the other girls. And so I, I really like the way that that's portrayed. I really like that their dynamic over the whole course of the movie. And you could read this as her being like, because she is so very, um, you know, like Danielle from Ever After, very invested in social justice. You could see this as her being like, well, if I marry the prince and he is kind of a sweet dummy, I can probably like make some real good change to the kingdom and like really make a difference here. So like, I'm not saying she doesn't also love him, but there is sort of a practical side to their relationship that sort of flips it around that like, it's not that she needs him to, you know, get her out of this bad situation, even though her stepfamily is terrible. It's more that, like, everybody will actually benefit by her marrying this guy. Yeah, just continuing kind of that thought. I mean, I talked a lot about with Cinderfella, there is no relationship, really. They just are forced together by external forces. One thing I love in a Cinderella story is they get together. They drive off to Princeton together, and then she explicitly says, like, 
And that was happily ever after. At least for a little while. I mean, I'm only a freshman after all. And I love that. Because number one, it's a teen movie. They're not going to be together forever. But it also... They did fight for each other, but they're also, like, 17 and life changes. And I kind of like that it's like, this is a good relationship now, and I am happy to be in it. But if it doesn't stay good, or if I meet somebody else, I'm willing to move. And I kind of liked that ending as a way to kind of break away from the happily ever after. What did you guys think about kind of the the prince and... Cinderella in your different dynamics and the happily ever after of it all. I thought that mine was completely unbelievable, um, but it's also a musical theater and that is a different kind of acting. Um, it was very, the acting was a little bit stiff, but it was also very much like, oh, I, it was just like love at first sight, you know, that they, they didn't know each other. It was very light and dancing and they kiss at one point, which was which was nice, I guess. But it just felt very um, superficial to me. The one bit that I did really like, I mean, I don't think this was earned at all. But at the end, when the prince is coming around with like the slipper and everything, because I guess in the Disney version, only the Duke and that other short guy come around. But this like the prince actually comes around with the um, with the slipper and he has the two sisters like try it on or whatever no one no one's heels get cut off thankfully and then he's you know like cinderella's like trying to figure out what to do and she's like i don't know what to do which is like really funny because she just could be like hey can i try that on but like she's shy and she doesn't want to get beat by her her stepmother <laughs> her fairy godmother shows up at that moment and doesn't tell her what to do, but kind of just, like, encourages her to make a choice. And then Cinderella's like, oh, I can give him water again. <laughs> and so she, like, offers him water. And the one thing I really like, and and I thought this was kind of nice, is that he knew she was the right girl before she tried the slipper on. He was, like, he saw her. It wasn't, like... In some versions, you know, she he only knows her, like, as, you know, the person who's done up in the nice dress. And, like, it's like um, a superhero when you are not supposed to know what they're, the real person, you know, who the real person is. Or opposite with with Superman, where, like, Clark Kent is, is, the, is the, um, the fake person, I guess. He sees her in her rags and her dirty face, and he realizes that that is the person he danced with at the ball there's no like who are you i mean i guess for like a second but it just that felt really nice to me that he just knew it was her with it before i mean she still puts the slipper on and it fits but like they didn't need that that almost like sealed it you know yeah that's actually one point in cinderfella that was actually kind of nice uh, so he he loses his shoe when he runs away. Uh, <laughs> but the princess knows exactly who he is. Like, he goes to leave the house after confronting the stepfamily, and she's just there, and she's like... And, and this is the weirdest... They tried to give her a personality in this, like, one line. She's like, hey, so I'm working my way through school by making shoes, 
would you try this one on for me? Which is just so weird. But she does know who he is immediately. And I, I appreciate that because that is the most annoying part of a Cinderella story. It, literally half of the movie, he, he does, he has no idea who she is. Despite the fact that he, like, talked to her after the fact about the things they talked about on the night and in their emails. And he's still like, okay, bye, diner girl. Oh, they are deeply and passionately in love. It's so real. (laughs) (laughs) As I was watching this movie with this question in mind this last time, I was like, oh, do you think this movie is why I fight with every man I've ever met? (laughs) 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 Thanks, Ben. Most of this movie just bickering, and it's amazing. They yeah. love it. <laughs> Have you made Ben watch this movie? This was actually the first movie that Ben watched on my recommendation when we started talking, nice. which is just great for that. the canon. <laughs> <laughs> A coincidence, but great. Yeah, I mean, I just think that they're so in love, and he does that thing that we've been talking about a lot today, which is, you know, at the end when um he knows it's her he has her shoe he's kind of just doing it as like a cutesy thing like oh i wonder if you could you know try on the shoe because whoever it belongs to is my perfect match and but he basically says like you've made me be a better person like i thought that my life was going to be one thing and then i met you and i've learned so much and i know that i can have a greater purpose let's have a university (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're officially over the two-hour mark, so I'm going to rapid-fire moment now. So I have, let's see, I have three more questions. And we're just going to go in order of when the movies came out, but I want to include the Disney version here, too. So, first question. Will they stay together forever, or will they break up shortly after the movie? Okay, starting with Disney's Cinderella. If divorce was possible, will they stay together forever or are they breaking up shortly thereafter? Well, if they're magically in love, (laughs) 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 which we have raised as a possibility, I think they'll stay together forever. I kind of do too. Um... I I think it's maybe also because it's animated. I'm just allowed to be like, yeah, they're in love. As we talked about on our previous episode, I think they, in the Once Upon a Studio short, Cinderella and the Prince have like a little moment together where like they're walking down some stairs and he loses his shoe. And then they both like have like a little laugh about it. Like it's like an inside joke between them. And then Prince Eric's dog picks up the shoe and runs away with it. <laughs> but like, that thing alone was like oh actually like now I like now like that one little moment I was like oh I understand who these people are as characters and yeah like it totally makes sense that they're together forever like I'm 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 on board with that I would be hesitant if we just had the movie itself I will say and this is like the only time I will argue that people need to watch uh Disney sequels Cinderella 3 You know, they go back in time, the stepmother messes with all sorts of things. They have to fight to be together. And they do. They both do. And the fairy godmother gets her wand back and she's like, I can wave it and we can just undo it all and go back to where we left it. And they choose not to 
because they feel like this is a better love story that they had the chance to fight for each other. And keeping that in mind, I think that if we accept that these are the same characters, they would have if they had had to. That, you know, they did have that bond. We just didn't see much of it. I think that's lovely. So, Disney version, we say yes. Let's see. 1960, Cinderella. Do they stay together, yes or no? Yes, but only because the man and the godfather magically forces them to. Because Bella literally rejects her and says, you only love me because you were forced to. And then he ends up just going back and they end up dancing together at the end anyway. So it's very much a, yes, they're together, but not through either (laughs) of their choices, in my opinion. Only because of lack of um, consent uh, in that instance. Okay, um, let's see. 1965, Cinderella. Do they stay together, yes or no? No, no. They're so boring. Um, They're going to, like, lose their minds. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to them. (laughs) That's fair. Isn't there a line that's like, do I love you because you're beautiful or are you beautiful because I love you? Yes. And then there's like another line in the same in the same song that says, do I want you because you're wonderful or are you wonderful because I want you? And I'm just like, this is these people you are full of it. cannot trust your own judgment. <laughs> no, like if you don't even know, like, what is this? OK, so so 1965. No, they break up. OK. Let's see, 1998, Ever After, do they stay together? Well, and it's their, like, grand, great-granddaughter or something like that in the beginning, so they canonically stay together. That's true. Or at least they had children. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) I'm just teasing. I think they're together. (laughs) I will say, Disney is about to make a weird move. So Disney has the Descendants franchise, which is about the children of the heroes and villains from Disney movies. They're putting out a fourth one that's going to star the daughter of Cinderella and Prince Charming. And it is canonically uh, Brandy's Cinderella. So through the transitive property, I think that says the Rodgers and Hammerstein couple has to stay together. Wait, (laughs) wait, 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 wait. What if the Brandy version, the version I watched, and the Julie Andrews version are all, like, different multiverse versions? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. the Brandy one, they could stay together, but that does not mean that the one in the other universes stays together. They do have a lot more chemistry in the Brandy version. Like yeah, that. they do. But also, I just wanted to have a multiverse of Cinderella. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like these are all, like, different universes i'm on board with that i think that works okay so we have what uh three yeses and one no so far that takes us to uh a cinderella story 2004 no no they they have a really nice relationship for like two years i do think they last beyond going to princeton but then, like, he he gets a job and gets distracted and they they find new partners. But it's amicable. I think I think they don't end up together, but it is a yeah, decent I agree with that. In the, eventually. Yeah, totally. 
He brings his family to eat at the diner. Okay, so it is literally the Taylor Swift, now I send their babies presents. Yes, yeah, that was exactly what I was referencing. <laughs> of course, the unfortunate thing with that is that that was yeah. supposed to be a reference yeah, to Joe Jonas fair. and Sophie Turner, <laughs> and that's going I mean, she might still send the babies presents. <laughs> that's uh, true. Okay, uh, Ryan, that takes us to Ella Enchanted. Do they stay together? I think if he listens to her and does change the policies, they stay together. But if he like goes back or like you know doesn't does doesn't listen to her, then she's out of there in an instant. She is like very much about like getting her own way again, not in a bad way because she's very like social justice minded. But she is not going to put up with anything. If he goes back on his promises to change his politics to her politics, she's going to be like, you are not who I thought you were. Goodbye. (laughs) She will immediately form a revolution. Yes. (laughs) Just do a full coup. Just go all the way. (laughs) You know, I, I love Ella Enchanted as a book and as a movie. They're different things, but I will say I, I would be down for a sequel to the Ella Enchanted movie of it's it's not that he does bad things it's just that he is so apathetic about politics that she's like you know what no we're we're overthrowing this at one point in the movie he's like is it my politics that doesn't matter and it's like yes it very much does <laughs> <laughs> you're the leader of this country what what you think kind of matters Okay, next rapid fire. Is it better than Disney? Yes or no? So, starting again with Cinderella, uh, I think that's obvious. No. No. Um, that one scene. Copy and paste that. Sure. Uh, otherwise, no. Uh, 1965 version. Better, worse, same? I don't think I don't think it's... I think it's worse. I, I did enjoy it, but... I'm sorry. Like, Gus Gus is very important to me. I just love all the... the and Jacques. Like, I love all the mice, and... I like the songs of the Disney version, too. I mean, the songs in the Rodgers and Hammerstein are good, but, like, a little bit silly. I just love saying... Even though it's, I guess, um, patriarchal, I just love Leave the Sewing to the Women. Like, that whole song is great. (laughs) You go get some trimming. Like, it just makes me happy. Okay, to be fair, like, yes, Leave the Sewing to the Women. She also then just immediately stabs like fabric. So it's (laughs) it's, it's a very Arya Stark version. Like, my needle is important to me. I feel she would just as as easily use that to stab out like the stepmother's eyes. I just have to say that I very much appreciate that reference because Melissa, Ryan, and I all met because we had joined a online community for a podcast that was covering Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Full circle. Okay, I think we know the answer here. Ever after, better or worse? I think it's better. 
I think it's better than like 70 probably percent of movies I've seen in my life, but notwithstanding. (laughs) I've spent this entire week being furious at myself for not having watched this movie the last 25 years. Like, what was I thinking? Yeah, like, I'm going to watch it again soon already. Yeah, I, I'm really glad I finally watched Ever After for the first time for this because I, I also really enjoyed it. And it was also just very different from what I expected based on just remembering the way it was marketed, you know, when it yeah. came out originally. So I was pleasantly surprised. And I'm going to probably say that it's probably on par with the Disney version for me, but that's just because they're so different as movies. Like, you know, the things that I like about the Disney Cinderella are a lot of like the art style and, you know, the animal characters and and things that are absolutely just not, not a part of Ever After at all. And so like, I do like that they are very different interpretations of the story. And that's what makes them both really, really good in in my mind. So let's see, that brings us to a Cinderella story. I say better than Disney, but Mm -hmm. I don't think this movie exists without the Disney version. So I don't think we could, I don't think we could like say, let's replace it. Uh, There is no Edwin McCain in the Disney version of this story. To just send me into, like, a visceral flashback to a middle school dance. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then uh, Ella Enchanted. Better, worse, the same. Watching it, I was, like, really feeling the budget. And I was like, if they had, like, some more money, like, that, like, the snake is just, it's a choice. Like, it's just, you know, it's it's 2004 mid-budget CGI. You know, and and again, some of the sets and things. And on some level, it's like charming, but it is like it is in that space of your. If it was like a TV movie at the time, you'd be like, "Wow, this is a really expensive TV movie." But if it's like you know a movie that you go see in the theater, you're like, "Oh, this feels a little cheap." So it's kind of in that weird no man's land that way. And so, like, I wish it had you know like better production values and things like it doesn't i was comparing it to a knight's tale that came out a couple years before like that movie looks you know has that sort of cinematic look that this doesn't quite get to but you know for what it is it's a really fun movie i just don't think any particular aspect is as strong as the disney cinderella in terms of like tapping into that icon like becoming iconic in that way would disagree but i you know, you're entitled to it. I think it's just such a better narrative to me. But I, I will acknowledge the artistic side is... C- Cinderella is better on that. But there are reasons in many ways for why Ella Enchanted did not have the budget and the artistic quality. The final question of the night is, what movie do you recommend to people? Of all the movies we've discussed and of the Disney version, let's just go each person. What's the one movie that if somebody has to watch tonight, what do they watch? Should we say them all at once? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do that to Tessa, who has said. Okay. How about. Um, I'll. I'll jump out first and just say I'm actually going to say Ever After if only because you know both Elise and I hadn't seen it before and I feel like it is one of those movies that gets slotted into like like in my mind prior to watching this I was like oh this is like 
a movie that like I remember the poster like it it was very like teen girl movie at the time in my head and I think for anybody who did who has overlooked it like it is well worth going to but I'm also sort of taking yeah. for granted that they've seen the Disney version before so um and both are on Disney plus so you know you could you could do a double feature pretty easily I'm going to just say that I agree. Um, I think Ever After is what I would tell people. And I'm like, I'm kind of shocked because I similarly had this vision of what the movie was in my head. And actually, it was a movie that I like, I had been pretty sure I hadn't seen, but I have learned recently that sometimes I watch movies and forget them. Specifically, Hasman movie recently. Um, I watched it and was like, I loved it and reacted as if I had never seen it. And then I looked at Letterboxd and I had watched it like eight months prior. Completely forgot. <laughs> All right. Maybe it was a little over a year, but still. So like I was expecting this to be one of those situations where I was like, oh, maybe I did see this. But like I had never seen this movie and it it. Parts of it get into, like, ridiculousness, and I mean that in the most affectionately, in the most affectionate way possible. Um, that, that one princess that was crying hysterically about having to get married to the, the prince Spanish was, like, princess. was the funniest thing ever, and it was just so perfect. <laughs> oh, I love this movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like it goes without saying that it's ever after for me, too. And I just have to say that it is like my cheeks hurt from grinning because it is bringing me so much genuine joy to have two of my favorite friends watch ever after for the first time and love it and then like talk about it where I can hear them. <laughs> to be honest, I don't I can't think of any movie that Melissa has suggested to me that I didn't like. No. Yeah, I like a lot of bad movies, but I don't necessarily recommend them. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean like you like of things you recommended for me to watch. Like, there's not been any bad anything that I didn't like. I mean, I I think there is a very clear consensus here. If there's just one for you to watch, um, that being said, I do think that people should watch more of these girly movies. From the 2000s and the late night and the 90s that like are actually just amazing and i kind of think that you know i know i said one and i i will agree if it's just one it's ever after but i i would say go for a triple feature with ever after uh a cinderella story and ella enchanted because i think they all do different elements so well mm-hmm I mean, thinking about how broad the Cinderella tale can be, I'm thinking of like more of these 2004 era movies. Like, let's talk about What a Girl Wants, starring Amanda Bynes and Colin Firth. <laughs> like, <laughs> I also I wanted to say with um with the movie that I chose, I genuinely enjoy the Ro Rodgers and Hammerstein songs, but I think mm -hmm. that if you were going to watch one of, I have to, I haven't seen the Julie Andrews one. Um, I do plan on watching it, but if you were going to watch one of those, I would say wa watch the Brandy Whitney Houston one. Um, and that is also on Disney Plus. This has turned into an ad for Disney Plus, which I think means that they need to send us some money. They really should. I mean. 
you're doing a lot of work for them. <laughs> well, and I, I will say, I'm not surprised that Disney Plus is the, you know, the home of Cinderella streaming. Uh, at all. <laughs> but I will, I will throw a quick plug out for, uh, I'm now the proud owner of Ella Enchanted on iTunes because it was like $3.99 to rent or $4.99 <laughs> to buy it. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to, sight unseen, I'm just going to buy this movie. So it is also a very easy, uh, easy watch that way. I was happy mine was on Prime because my dad has that and I didn't have to spend any money. We probably have it recorded off of the television somewhere on VHS at my parents' house. I didn't bust it out, but I do have an Ever After DVD in my home. (laughs) Of course you do. As you should. I have a Cinderella Disney version DVD in my home. Ryan has like three of them, I think. If that exists. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I think I have a Blu-ray, and uh, until we have someone enter our giveaway, I have uh, my own personal copy of the new 4K that just came out and a second copy that we are uh, attempting to give away on this podcast to some of our listeners. So if you go back and listen to any of our Season 3 episodes, you may hear about ways to win a copy of the animated Cinderella 4K, which, by the way, they, they redid, like, they went back and rescanned it, and they got all the original color correct because it's been... There's been issues with previous disc releases that I will not yeah. super get into, but the this new version and the the four it's the same. This restoration that's on the disc, uh, they also just added to Disney Plus. Uh, I think at the end of August, and it it looks better than it ever has since its original release. It's really really stunning. Oh, okay, that's so that's the version I probably watched this weekend. Uh, and that's the version you can see her dress is more, supposed to be. It looks more silver uh, with this new restoration uh, than blue, which still in my head, if someone says Cinderella, that I picture that dress as being blue and it's upsetting to me. See, I always picture it silver because I think because the Disney version and because in the Rogers Hammers and Hammerstein version that I watched, it's also Silver. I, I definitely think <laughs> that the impact of the Disney Princesses franchise cannot be understated in the blueification of Cinderella. I still find it I still find it wild that like <laughs> before the nineties <laughs> they got the Disney Princess thing wasn't really a thing. And again that you know, we've finished season three now, and we've still only had two princesses. Uh, Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty is soon to come, but still, you know, after that, it's going to be another, you know, 30 plus years. So it's. Yeah, I feel like because I was I was a, in elementary school in the 90s, and I feel like when with it, like started becoming a thing more with like, um. The Little Mermaid and Aladdin is like after that. I feel like is when the Disney princesses started being a little bit more of a and um, Beauty and the Beast obviously too. Yeah, well, when we get there, we will definitely be doing a whole bonus episode on Disney princesses, just like as a as a branding thing. I remember when Disney bought. Um, Lucasfilm and people were like Princess Leia is now a Disney princess and I'm just like that was a sigh people (laughs) I find it funny also with the Disney acquiring everything that 
my favorite animated princess my entire life, and I stand by this, is not a Disney princess. It's Anastasia. Because, n- oh, number one, love just amazing movie. It's got the bickering, but also just like, this is, you know, this is for my family, and this is for me. Like, she, she was amazing, but technically... Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, Disney does own her now. So yeah, that wasn't a Disney production, but it is. But it is, yeah. It's like ever after. So <laughs> yet again, we have an unofficial Disney princess that wasn't Disney, but now is Disney because they eat and absorb the world. I also liked that when uh, they acquired, can't remember which one. Uh, everyone was like, oh, Dr. Frankenfurter is now a Disney princess, which also is beautiful and perfect. <laughs> I mean, you know, technically, Shuri is also a Disney princess. Oh, and she absolutely deserves to be supported for it. Yes. <laughs> All of that said, I think it's time for us to wrap up. So I'm going to say now is the time to again uh, for our guests say your names say your social media, your other podcasts. I'm going to do a quick plug here and just say I'm now the head of a history and trivia website, so definitely check out askeverest.com. There's not terribly much yet, but by the time this episode comes out, there might be. So that's my plug, and I'll hand it off to our guests. Um, Yeah, so I personally am on Blue Sky and Letterboxd at Mellow Yellow, and Elise and I do a True Blood rewatch podcast together called Bang Bangers Pod, and that is Bangers with a Z. I'm Elise, and you can find me on Blue Sky, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at Chicken Tendi. That's T-E-N-D-I. Um, besides Bang Bangers Pod, my other podcast is Pod Rates at Deep Space Nine rewatch podcast it's on twitter blue sky and instagram at pod rates that's um p-o-d-w-r-a-i-t-h-s and wherever you listen to podcasts awesome thank you both so much for coming on here and you know fangirling about cinderella for hours because (laughs) that's apparently what we do on this podcast thank you for having us I am sure we will find another time for you both to join us if you'd like to, because this has been so much fun. For those of you who are following us uh, in our adventures, we are at the end of season three, but we do have one more bonus episode for season three coming out. So our next episode is going to be this, but with Peter Pan adaptations, where we can deal with the the good, the bad, and the ugly, because... Oh boy, is there a lot with Peter Pan. After that, we're going to have a little while off before season four, uh, but we are going to have two bonus episodes before we start season four dealing with Disneyland the Park and Disneyland the TV series, which are highly interconnected. Remember that you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com. Follow us on on Twitter. Uh, Dream Mind Heart, and on Instagram at Dream With Mind and Heart. Uh, as we mentioned, we still have some giveaways going, so feel free to listen to all of our episodes from this last season and reach out on email or social media. And we have so many things to give away, and they're super cool. And if nobody sends in stuff, that means I just have to keep them. So, you know, I, I guess maybe don't listen, you know. who? We'll, we'll see. 
All of that said, uh, thank you so much to our guests today. Thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela, who I believe is going to be on our next episode, and I am so excited. Yeah, 